Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Across the Pond. This is episode 15 and today's in the day because I'm fun employed. Barry, welcome. Good to be here, Chad. Let's hit that jingle. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad. So like I said, I'm nice and fun employed for now. Back on the search again, obviously short term work. Um, so back on the search again, which is really cool because now I get to chat to Barry and there's some actual daylight going on outside. Not that miserable sort of evening time session. Barry, how's it going that side today? It's going really well, Chad. It's very hot over here at the moment, so staying in the shade as much as possible, but a beautiful African sunshine and really enjoying it. That This week has been good so far. And your side, Chad? Yeah, no, all good. Uh, we've got a couple of things to chat about today. Uh, some very, very exciting things Definitely. that I got up to last night. Um, so to be honest, <laughs> I, I don't think a week could be topped off any better than this. Um, so yeah, certainly no complaints. Shall we get into the bones of our episode? Let's do it. The week that was. Right, so let's kick off the week that was. This past week, I actually saw fairly recently, HSBC have come out with a bit of an announcement saying that they are going to be cutting 35,000 jobs um, and shedding off a couple of assets. This is part of a plan to get a little bit leaner and meaner. Um, obviously, we've seen financial services firms restructuring quite a bit since uh, the 2008 financial crisis. This is their third major restructure in the last 10 years, um, which is pretty insane. Um, and in terms of the sort of assets that they're going to be shedding off as part of this restructure we're talking about 77 billion pounds quite a crazy move there yeah definitely uh, but not the one that surprises me though i think we've seen a lot of these big restructurings from banks all around the world uh, the whole financial system has really taken a huge turn as you say after that 2008 crisis and are starting to rethink what types of risks they're willing to take as well as what their systems are going to look like going forward and, and what kind of various types of services they're going to offer to people I think we've seen a huge trend towards online banking and more self-service banking that has kind of pushed a lot of the, the people-heavy work away. And so in order to compete, in order to keep costs at a relatively um, reasonable rate, you've got to get rid of some of these jobs and kind of let the self-service take over. So we've seen, in South Africa, we've seen banks give huge job cuts as well and all around the world. And so it's not a surprise to me. 35,000 is a lot of jobs, though. So HSBC is obviously this giant, giant bank with, the, with, the, with offices all around the world. And so 35,000 jobs is a big number, but I, I fear that for every single bank that is operating today, this, these are the kind of cuts that are going to come unless they can find new services to kind of transition their people into. The biggest thing for me when as soon as I think about something like this is where are those people going to go? Like you said, this is kind of a financial services wide move. Um, and uh, of course, the number of available jobs are you know slowly decreasing um, throughout the industry. So where do these people go? Um, do they kind of need to reinvent themselves? Obviously, we know financial services has been um, an industry that has let people sort of get accustomed to a certain lifestyle, um, obviously paying you know, a fair bit more than other industries. Um, but yeah, what, what are these people going to do? Yeah, so that's the big question, right? And it comes down to the individuals who are in those situations. Can they reskill themselves or can they find a more relevant career path going forward? So if you're going to stay in financial services, which I think is the kind of the first option for a lot of these people because of what they studied and because of their background, you've got to find a way to move into business units and divisions where there is a long-term future for them and you can actually see yourself being relevant going forward. I think it's easier for youngsters, so someone coming out of university or in their early 20s to make that kind of career shift. What I think is really hard is if you're in your 40s and your 50s, you've been doing this your whole life, and all of a sudden now you've got to rethink about your career. I think that's very difficult. 
And I think this goes beyond just banking itself. There's a lot of people in these kinds of organizations and jobs and uh, career plans which are going to be taken over by automation or by self-service or by a change in consumer preferences. And you've got to be proactive and thinking ahead, right? So these guys, I'm sure they knew about this, these layoffs for a while. I'm sure they understood like what was coming down the pipe. And you'd like to hope that there have been plans in place, especially from an HSBC perspective, to try and help these people out as best they can. And I, I don't know if that's the case, but one would hope so. Well, let's definitely hope that is the case. Another little interesting stat that I saw as part of this article that I read is that HSBC, although being the biggest bank in Europe, is actually earns 90% of their net profits in Asia. Now, that for me is quite a crazy stat um, and is obviously one of the reasons why this type of move is in order, um, especially when, when you look at some of the things happening over in China. Yeah, definitely. I think that Asia is this underrated kind of financial market, an underrated financial powerhouse. And so if you're able to become a bridge for the Asian market into the Western world, I think you can make a lot of money. And that's obviously what HSBC is doing. 90% sounds crazy to me. That is a huge dependency on one yep. particular geographical area. And so you wonder what happens to an HSBC if the Asian market goes through a huge downturn or something happens that we've we, we been talking about the coronavirus. If that has a huge impact on the economy and kind of tanks some of those Asian stocks and those Asian economies and whatnot, what does that do for HSBC? So that kind of dependency on one geographic location for such a multi national corporation, I'm sure it's a bit of a concern for them. And you wonder what kind of things they're putting in place to try and change that a bit and diversify a little bit more so that you don't have all your eggs in one basket. Well, we'll soon see what their restructuring plan is there. Moving on to the next one, um, Barry, the low-key Bitcoin investor. Tell us all about it. <laughs> yeah, so I must disclose that I am an investor, but I thought this was really interesting because Bitcoin from the beginning of the year has been on an absolute roller coaster ride and has gone up at some point over 50% up from the beginning of January. And as of yesterday, it's up 41% from its from its year end of 2019. So in the space of a month and a bit, it's it's or two months and a bit, uh, it's really, really gone crazy. And uh, no one can explain why. It's one of those wonderful things about Bitcoin where the volatility is completely illusory and no one understands what's happening. Um, but it's been really interesting to see that the price is still going up and up and up and up. So for investors and people who believe in the technology, it's very clear Bitcoin is not dead, right? Even though it's kind of fallen out of the main media and not many people are talking about it as, as much, the speculation on price is certainly not at the kind of hype that it was like a year or two ago. It still is very, very popular and there's still lots and lots of trading going on. And I think that the price continues to increase because we're coming to the end of the amount of Bitcoin that can ever be mined. Right. right. So for those who don't know, Bitcoin has a finite amount of 24, I think it's 24 million Bitcoin. And that's uh, when that's when that last Bitcoin is mined, that's the end of the supply forever. And so naturally, if you look at any economics 101 class, the moment that supply is stopped, the price is going to go up and up because of the demand, assuming the demand keeps going. Sure. And so my best guess is that that's the case. And that's the reason I, that I'm investing, because I'm making a bet that over a long term period, the price is going to continue to go up because the supply stops. Um, but in, in fairness, we're all just guessing at this stage. Yeah, it's a really interesting one because usually you see that value go up or down uh, sort of around regulatory concerns. As soon as some country puts out some sort of statement that they're reviewing something, that's when people get a little bit cautious and, and you know, pull the value back. Equally, um, you know, I've always heard of releases of other currencies and, and you know, those kinds of events. There are words, key phrases for them. I don't quite know them. Maybe you'll be able to, to throw them in there. Um, but yeah, very interesting that this one is just kind of organically happened. And like you said, just proving that Bitcoin's not dead. 
Yeah, and that's the nature of, being, of it being decentralized, that no one actually has the levers to pull, right? So when you think of fiscal policy, you think of releasing more currency or buying more currency back to try and control price movements. There's no one who can do that in Bitcoin because it's completely decentralized. There is no, there's no like public entity that's controlling any of it. And so the price is literally just a market price. It's supply and demand at its very, very core. And so it's, it's one of those things where it's confusing for someone outside of the world. I think if you believe in the technology and you willing to hold for a long period of time, I think that's the best way to go about it. If you try to trade on this, obviously there's lots of volatility, so you can make a lot yeah. of money, and lots of people have, but it really is gambling for smart people at the moment because no one actually knows what is driving these these price movements um, because a lot of it is so uh, undercover and kind of all over the world, and it's hard to get a sense of why big transactions are happening or how that impacts the supply and demand. Absolutely. I mean, with the economic instability in some regions, um, you often often wonder whether that could be one of the reasons, uh, because a lot of people are sort of moving money into into these platforms that allow them to kind of get around the world a lot easier. Um, moving on to the next one, I was quite devastated this past weekend um, when I got a notification that Caroline Flack has passed away at the age of 40. Now, if you haven't heard of Caroline Flack before, she's a British uh, personality, a British uh, TV person, and um, essentially one of the main characters uh, of the Love Island brand. Um, and actually the, the person who's been credited with getting the brand so big again um, when she sort of joined it a couple of years back um, and has been in the press of late um, with some allegation charges against her partner. Um, I haven't really familiarized myself too much with the story, but as far as I know, there was some screaming and shouting. Neighbors called the cops. Cops knocked on their door and both of them were covered in blood. Um, essentially, her partner sort of denied any of these claims. Um, he didn't want this sort of case to go forward at all. And uh, what actually ended up happening is that the Royal Crown Service carried on with these charges. Uh, they, they were not going to sort of just hold them off. And uh, it, it looks like mental health got the better of Caroline. She actually took her own life um, a couple of weeks before the trial. Um, just a really, really devastating story. Such a beautiful, young, bubbly personality. Um, you know, just being caught on the wrong side of, of an event. That, that sounds horrible. Um, I, I'm afraid I don't know much about her, but we, whenever you get these kind of personalities who die before their time or if because of these kinds of things, it really does kind of... It's really sad, right? It kind of it gets in your crawl a bit. And I think we, we, we take for granted the fact that someone can look very happy and bubbly and, and like on top of the world in a public eye, but behind the scenes in their private life, things can be a completely different story. And so we've, we've chatted a little bit about the perils of fame in the past, and it's very, very important to realize that the characters people play online or in TV shows or in these major media platforms doesn't necessarily match up to what they're going through in their personal life. So we have to have a lot of empathy for these people, even though we see them as rich and famous and having the best of the world and we kind of are jealous of them sometimes, we have to be empathetic towards the fact that their private lives might not reflect what we're seeing online. Absolutely. And uh, again, just reiterating how important that mental health conversation is, um, you know, suicide again, um, except obviously now in, in quite a prominent figure. Um, just a really, really terrible situation to see her in. And uh, I'm, I'm devastated at the news myself. Um, moving on to the next one, um, we've been chatting quite a bit about the big tech companies, and that's kind of been a core theme of our podcast from the start. Um, we've seen Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook urging for tighter regulation. They've obviously felt that there's a little bit too much of onus on them um, and uh, really trying to get regulators to put something else out there so that they don't have to decide what is and isn't free speech. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah, I think this is a, probably the key debate when it comes to social media policy in the last five or ten years is the fact that where does the responsibility lie to manage a conversation or manage public discourse, right? So previously, these social media companies, they were seen as commercial enterprises where their users would come and put whatever content on their platform, whatever, and they weren't responsible for what was going on that, on that website. Basically, all they were doing was facilitating that content sharing and facilitating conversation. But as they became bigger and bigger and bigger and more influential, they start to swing elections, they start to swing political views, they start to really have an impact on the, the world at large. All of a sudden, people are calling for more accountability and calling for various things. Like they want hate speech removed and they want free speech to, to reign and they want people to be able to share their opinions with, without harassing other people and a whole range of ethical issues. And so someone like Mark Zuckerberg has come under serious threats and serious kind of criticism because of what Facebook has done in this space. And so they are obviously feeling the pressure from the world having to monitor this giant, giant conversation with billions and billions of users. I don't know how you even think about monitoring conversations across hundreds of countries, thousands of languages in real time about very difficult issues, right? It's a very, very tough job. And they obviously come under, come under fire when something happens when there's an ISIS video that gets live on the website or there's a hate speech thing that happens or something goes wrong, they hold responsible. So basically what Zuckerberg is asking for here is the fact that these commercial companies need assistance and they actually need rulings from a legal entity, from a government or from a world government to try and draw a line in the sand as what is free speech, what is hate speech, like what is allowed on these platforms and what isn't. Because when Facebook is sending for themselves, it looks self-serving. It's hard to take them seriously and it doesn't look as authentic as if a, you, the US government would come in and say, cool, these are the rules and then Facebook can take their foot off the accountability thing yeah. and just apply the rules the US sets. So that's what Zuckerberg is trying to do. We had another little discussion earlier, um, you know, where you kind of chatted about the, the sort of market share and that kind of thing. Um, do you think this is just getting them a, a bigger foothold in the market, obviously being such a respected giant in this place? Yeah, so that's why this debate is so confusing and complicated is because if you think about the economic incentives of further regulation, that might actually harm companies who could potentially compete with Facebook, right? So Facebook grew up in a world where there was no regulation and they were able to run as fast as possible, scale as big as possible and didn't really have any rules. They could kind of like move fast and break things was their slogan for a long time. And so that's the way that they've grown into this multi, multi like national corporation that controls so much of the, the global conversation. Okay. If you were now to pull up the drawbridge behind Facebook and put regulations in place, then someone coming to compete in the social media market has to start from scratch without the scale that Facebook has, but with all these extra red, red, red tape and all these extra hoops you have to jump through in order to compete. So the cynic or the conspiracy theorist might say that these companies want regulation now because they want to put the barrier behind them and keep their little monopoly that they've got going on global conversation. So it's such a difficult topic and I don't know where I stand on it. It's very important that we allow competition. We need guys to be able to compete with Facebook and try and provide a more safe and a better environment for social conversation. But at the same time, the regulation, I think, is important as well. Definitely. And so what his intentions are, no one knows. Only he will know. Um, but I think it's a very interesting debate and something we're going to see for the next few years. We try and figure out what to do with the, all the, the problems that social media has kind of dug up with human psychology. Yeah, it really is an interesting discussion. And especially, you know, who that body is to put this legislation forward. Whose remit does this fall under? This is worldwide conversation. Um, Facebook touches all parts of the globe. Um, so 
although at the moment all those debates have been happening in the U.S. Congress, obviously where Facebook is established, um, ultimately these decisions are, are touching the rest of the world as well. And so really interesting to see uh, where that legislation eventually will come from. Um, another little interesting part that I noticed here is that at the moment as it stands, WhatsApp, one of uh, Facebook's subsidiary companies, is currently being used by 2 billion people worldwide. More than a quarter of the world's population is on WhatsApp. How crazy is that in terms of, uh, you know, the just the scale of this app and, and how quickly it's gone from, you know, being something that was purchased by Facebook to something that is now a trusted, encrypted end-to-end -end app that we all use on a day-to-day -day basis? It's unfathomable. I, I, can't, I can't even bring my mind to understand how big 2 billion users is, right? It's, it's a crazy number. And what's even crazier is the fact that they haven't monetized it yet, right? Yep. <laughs> All they've done is they've, they've built it and they're using it. And so they're making zero money. It's probably costing them billions and billions of dollars every single month. But I think it shows the power of network effects, especially in things like messaging apps, right? There are thousands of messaging apps. There's nothing super special about WhatsApp's features, nothing special about the way it looks, the design, any of that. All that it's got going for it is that it was the first mover in the smartphone generation. And if all of my friends are on WhatsApp, I'm forced to get WhatsApp because otherwise I can't talk to them, right? Yeah. So that network advantage of getting that scale up front and then because I need my friends to be on WhatsApp in order to communicate with them, therefore that's how it spreads. So you don't have to do any marketing. There's no, there's no billboards advertising WhatsApp. There's no TV commercials advertising WhatsApp. Yeah. It's your friends saying, hey dude, get on this app and then we can chat for free over Wi-Fi. And, that, and that's kind of the, the amazing selling point. So it's, a, it's an amazing consumer success story um, from an app that was started, I think, by 11 people in a, in a basement when Facebook bought it to wow. kind of the scale that it is right now is absolutely mind-blowing. And it's, it's, it's hard to see a competitor coming into the space and disrupting messaging, right? How are you going to convince that kind of scale to move to your new platform? I don't know if it's possible. Yeah, it's a, it's a really a good thought there. I mean, such an interesting one. Um, a lot of the messaging apps that we've seen in the past that have collapsed, I'm not going to say collapsed, but in terms of the, the, the sort of user base, um, you know, at least while I was growing up, BlackBerry Messenger was quite a big thing with all of my friends. And I actually sort of skipped that iteration. Um, but because it was constrained to one particular device, obviously they did change that after some point in time. But, be, but because of that, I think, you know, it was easy to, to see it fall. Um, obviously, we've seen the dominance of Apple as well, and they've got their iMessenger, which a lot of people um, also cling to. And there's other cool little features there, I guess, as well. Um, you know, you can you can throw in some effects and, and, and those kinds of things. Um, but it is really interesting to see one sort of universal app that can sit on all devices um, having this kind of dominance. Obviously, we've got WeChat as well um, out in China, um, sort of ultimately owned by a South African listed company. Um, and, and WeChat has, has definitely added quite a bit of value on the stock exchange that side. That's, exa that's exactly the point I was going to bring up next is that it's worth bringing WeChat into this discussion because they are the only other like kind of platform that is at this sort of scale and this kind of influence, especially in the, in the Eastern world, right? So if you go to China or any of those places in the Eastern world, WeChat runs those economies because yeah. in, 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 the, in those spaces, WeChat is not just a messaging app. It's okay. how they run their banking. It's gaming. It's media. It's like a whole range of stuff. And WeChat is so ingrained in the economy that if you don't have it, you can't really function in China. And so that is the only other parallel that I can see to a WhatsApp. And that opens the conversation for, will WhatsApp 
apps start to turn on other features like that? Yeah. Will they open up a banking feature? Will they open up media features and beyond just the messaging? Because that's how you're going to monetize it, right? The moment you put ads on WhatsApp, you, you, you kill the app, right? So the way they have to monetize is by creating new features and trying to provide more value to their consumers. So it's interesting to see, are they going to follow a WeChat type model or are they just going to not monetize it at all and use it as a, just an asset in Facebook's kind of um, world to ensure that nobody else has it, right? Um, is it just a defensive thing to make sure we control the conversation and therefore we can make, make calls based on that? Because there's a big misnomer in the media where people think that people are reading your WhatsApp messages and, and making advertising based on it. And it's not the case because it's yeah. fully encrypted from, from start to finish. Yeah. So how are they making money from this? It's, it's hard to say. And as Facebook starts to, I, I think it's going to start to lose its relevance over time, will WhatsApp be that crown jewel they have to start like pushing? Yeah, let's definitely see what happens there. Um, also interesting because Facebook has their own other messenger called Facebook Messenger, which they have kind of unbundled from Facebook. Um, you know, there's a separate app for it. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just like you, a little bit puzzled as to their long-term strategy. So we'll have to wait and see for that. Moving on to the next one, Barry, talk us through the State of a Nation address uh, in South Africa for 2020. Yes, so last week we had the State of the Nation where uh, President Ramaphosa kind of had his chance to speak to the nation and speak to Parliament. Um, and, and always with these annual speeches, there's always a big hoo-ha. There's lots of famous people there and there's lots of grand ceremony and whatnot. We had Sia Khaleesi in the audience. We had all sorts of okay. interesting people there. And uh, I think it's one of those one of those times where South Africans um, sit down and kind of think about what is the future of the country and what does that look like going forward? So I, I tuned in at, I think it was 4 p.m. I was ready for it. And... Uh, Believe it or not, Chad, the actual speech didn't start for 97 minutes. What? 97 minutes of disruption before Cyril <laughs> actually got a chance to speak. And wow. I'm sure for all South Africans, you, you'll know exactly what happened because it's been all over our media. But uh, a political party called the EFF, or the Economic Freedom Fighters, disrupted proceedings in Parliament for 97 minutes. Wow. And it was very, very difficult to watch. As a South African, I... I was a little bit embarrassed to be South African. I was thinking if I was an international investor and I was tuning in to the state of the nation to understand what's going on in this country, and then for 97 minutes there is a complete zoo in the, in the parliament building, I'd be quite worried about it. Yeah. And so while I, while I agree with what the EFF were protesting and while I agree with their points, the way they were bringing it up and the, and the way they were disrespecting the Speaker of the House and the cheap whip and all these kinds of things and disrupting this very important international media event was, was really tough. And so I'm all for accountability and I'm all for the EFF having their say. I think they're a very important piece of South African politics. But if they don't, if they don't respect the kind of the leaders in, that, in that, that forum and they're not able to realize that this is actually doing more harm than good for the cause. They think that they are speaking up and being kind of the, the accountability partners of the, of the country. But what they're actually doing is, is making it a very sour, sour taste for internationals who are looking at that. And even for South Africans, for someone like me looking at that, it made me feel feel pretty terrible. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, th that was kind of how it started. And so the two things the EFF were disrupting about were, were quite key. The first one is that former president F.W. de Klerk was in attendance here, right? And so apparently what happens is that for all of these, for all of these events, um, all the former presidents of South Africa who are still alive are invited. And uh, so... FW Clab came and sat inside the, the chamber. And for those who don't know, FW Clab has a very difficult relationship with South Africa because he was the president at the end of the apartheid era. And he is the one who worked with Nelson Mandela to bring the new South Africa into place. 
but for a lot of the country, he's still seen as that white Afrikaans leader who, who presided over apartheid, and he really did. And so that's, that was controversial enough. But what made it even worse was that a week before he was, a week before the Sona, he was interviewed on a local uh, TV, TV show, and one of the questions put to him was, do you think that apartheid was a crime against humanity? And it's pretty clear that it was. The UN have already like said it's a crime against humanity. It's kind of yeah. it, it's, it's clear to everybody. Yeah. And he denied it. He said it wasn't a crime against humanity on live TV. Wow. And so whatever his reasons for that were, it was incredibly controversial and obviously stirred up a lot of hatred and a lot of like terrible, terrible things. So the moment he's sitting there in parliament, the EFF were going crazy because they could not believe that this self professed like person who neglected the apartheid um, was was able to sit in those hallowed hallowed worlds right and so that was the first thing they protested and i completely agreed with them i think he should never have been there i don't know why i thought he could go yeah. and sit in that parliament especially after what he has said the week before anyway that's the first thing yeah once they had spent 35 minutes pointlessly discussing that the next thing they they disrupted was was re regarding Praveen Gordon. And uh, basically, Praveen Godan is now the minister of the state-owned enterprises, so ESCOM and Transnet and all these kind of things that we've chatted about on this program before. And they were kind of protesting his involvement because of the load shedding we're currently going through. So what they were saying was basically what they wanted, literally what they wanted was the president to stop everything, adjourn the meeting, go outside, fire Praveen, and then come back in and, and resume the speech. <laughs> That's literally what they asked. Um, wow. and, and so it was completely ridiculous. So, so whether you think he's doing a good job or not, like just that wasn't the time to bring up this sort of thing to try and get a minister fired in the middle of the state of the nation address was just silly. Um, and they they wasted another thirty five minutes doing that. So eventually, ninety seven minutes in, they eventually all walked out. So the EFF all walked out, all sixty of them, and they went and danced and sang and kind of talked to the media outside. And once they had left, then they could finally get back to the actual speech that we were all there for. Um, so by the time we got to the speech, which was 97 minutes in, it was quite anticlimactic because you've been watching the soap opera for an hour and a half and then it got to the real meat of the deal, right? The actual speech itself, which is a bit crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, always, a, it's always a funny one when it comes to South African uh, public kind of addresses. We've always, you know, we've seen uh, the EFF being actually taken out of the house before. Um, did that happen in this time? Um, and also, I mean, if I kind of think of, uh, you know, Jacob Zuma as well, um, I know a lot of my friends even had a drinking game on um, every time he, he said a certain word. It's definitely not the way you'd like these kinds of addresses to be perceived. Um, but yeah, certainly this is what has been established of, out of recent times. Yeah, I think the EFF, they, they actually said before the speech that their intention was to disrupt it completely. So everyone knew what was going to happen. They had already made the intentions clear. But unfortunately, the way the South African parliament runs, there isn't much that the cheap whip can do to kind of stop what they're doing. So they're, al they're technically allowed to raise points of order as much as they want. And uh, they can keep doing it and keep doing it because they've been elected into parliament. They have a right to be there. They have a right to speak. And so they actually need to rethink about the rules and rethink about the fact that even in, in this kind of mass disruption where you can see that it's not genuine, it's not, it's, the common sense needs to come into play and we need to be able to say, cool, this is not relevant for this discussion, we need to table this and if you're not gonna table it, then I'm gonna have to ask you to leave. And so a lot of the criticism the ANC has come under in the, in the wake of this is that there was no teeth. There was no one saying, cool, that's enough, get out or, or shut up. Um, and what that did was it allowed the EFF to keep pushing and keep prodding and keep raising points yeah. of order. And it came from like 20 of their members. They were just recycling all the various people, recycling the two points of the FW Clack and the, the Provin Gordon. 
and 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 so that's that's something that needs to change if we're going to look forward. I think it's going to happen every single event if they yeah. keep doing this because it's a strategy that works for them. It gets them a lot of media coverage. It kind of shows them as the the horse that's fighting for rights. Um, and so if if we're going to have a, a stable kind of parliament going forward, we might have to think about changing those rules. Yeah, I think the, the examples that I'm thinking about, um, obviously not kind of process-wise, but I think this was when there was actual violence uh, in the parliament, um, and they then obviously had to get taken out. So yeah, fair point. Uh, maybe a wider discussion in terms of process and, and parliamentary process needs to be had. Um, but in terms of the contents, once it actually got started, talk us through it. Yeah, so I thought I'd run through some of the major points that, that, that Cyril brought up to kind of get a sense of where South Africa is going. The first one was a... a promise of a coherent plan for ESCOM, right? So we've talked, ESCOM is kind of the, the elephant in the room here in South Africa. And so the, his major point was that he's going to ensure there's a coherent plan that's going to move dependence away from the national grid and into the hands of more independent power producers. So this is amazing. It all sounds great. We can only hope that the promise actually leads to the expectation. Yeah, that's quite a, that's quite a big promise uh, and, and quite a change in, in narrative in, in recent times. I mean, we've obviously seen uh, a couple of weeks back they've allowed uh, you know independent businesses to start producing um, you know for themselves but when we talk about independent power producers it almost looks like um, we're kind of establishing a more privatization type uh, scenario for SA's electricity grid much needed definitely it's a complete 180 on kind of the the narrative of the last kind of 10 years and so while there was very little details to how this is going to be executed it is a step in the right direction and hopefully it's going to start moving towards a world where we have people competing for our business which will hopefully provide reliable and cheap electricity something has to change right because at the moment we're looking at load shedding for the next 18 months and that's going to have huge implications for the South African economy so I think it's a forced 180 but a good one in the yeah. long term uh, future of the country definitely definitely what else was on the bill all right so much more so the next one was talking about transparency and accountability for public service officials right so he announced that there's now going to be performance agreements and contracts for ministers so basically kpis for ministers great i am blown away that this hasn't been <laughs> in the past i don't know <laughs> i don't know how you can be a minister of such an important thing and not have performance clauses in your contract that is Definitely. that blows my mind so I'm, I'm happy and shocked to hear that these weren't in place before and they're now <laughs> going to be in place going forward. So obviously it's difficult to measure metrics when you think about public service. It's difficult to understand what are you going to measure because a lot of it is out of your control. But having some sort of metrics, some sort of KPIs, I think is very important to ensure that we have the right people in the right jobs. Yeah, even if those KPIs are kind of negative base, are, are, you know, so long as this doesn't happen, um, that is already a lot more than what we've had in the past. But like you said, obviously, uh, positive base tests uh, even better. Um, I, I'm sure they can come up with some things. And uh, yeah, like you said previously, I think it's just been waiting until there is eventually a cabinet reshuffle, um, which obviously various presidents um, have done at various frequencies in the past. But yeah, this sounds like uh, sort of human resources 101, if you'd like. Yeah, and, and very important, I think. As, as we start to fight through the corruption we've seen and try to put in place a more sustainable model for how we're going to remunerate people, how we're going to 
promote people? How are we going to hold these people accountable? It's crucially important. So A plus for me from there. The next one was something that I was surprised by is a, a 6.1 billion rand investment in rail, so i.e. trains, and specifically freight trains. So two particular lines, the Central Line in the Western Cape of South Africa and the Mabopane Line in Pretoria, both are going to get substantial upgrades, both to the actual railway tracks and to the stations. And kind of the reasoning for this was to try and improve freight and improve logistics around the country. So in our country, we have a lot of things coming in from the ports, like down in the, down in the, in the sea areas, coming in from overseas. And can we get those faster into the major cities, especially Johannesburg and Pretoria? So I think it's quite an interesting thing. I, I haven't thought about railways in a long time. Um, so I know nothing about it. But a 6.1 billion rand investment in this kind of economic climate is quite a big statement. And hopefully there's some actual backing behind that decision. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, especially if these lines are already in place. I mean, is that 6.1 billion going to give us anything new? Um, I certainly would uh, find a lot of interest in that line being also tailored towards passengers. Um, public transport in South Africa is non-existent. Um, it is essentially privatized. Um, and yeah, really just an interesting one, um, especially when those are existing lines as well. Um, let's see if we sort of see any major benefits from that. Without a doubt. The next one is something that's come up in every Sona for the last 10 years and still nothing happens, and it's that cutting business red tape, right? So we've known for a long time to, to start a business and to run a business in South Africa is very regulatory difficult. There are lots of hoops you have to jump through, lots of red tape, and that kind of disincentivizes a lot of entrepreneurs because it's a rather difficult business environment to start something in. And so again, he spoke about the fact they want to make it easier for entrepreneurs, they want to make it more attractive for people to start their own businesses. Uh, again, very little detail, a lot of promises, so we'll have to wait and see what that looks like. But um, this is one that kind of rings hollow with a lot of people because we've heard it before and nothing has changed. So hopefully this is the, 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 the start of that change. Yeah, definitely. I've, I've definitely heard of this a couple of times. Uh, I mean, in terms of the, the sort of ideas I've, I've heard commentary on is, is to have a one-stop shop. So instead of going to company's house to set that up, you know, going to SARS to set up your tax stuff, having kind of a one-stop shop for um, small to medium-sized enterprises. And yeah, um, it, it kind of, like you said, has been ringing hollow, especially because we know how much emphasis the government are, are placing on state-owned enterprises and really for job creation and for sort of economic development the small to medium-sized space is one that has been underserved for a long time. So hopefully there'll be some movement this year. Definitely. We'll have to wait and see there. The next one is a tourism-based one. There was a lot of chat about um, major tourist attractions, specifically things like Cape Town, the Drakensberg, the Kruger National Park, trying to have more security in those major tourist attractions to try and ensure that people aren't put off by the kind of the crime statistics of the country. So it, it's a little bit of a strange one. I understand why they're doing it, because we need that tourism money and we need to be able to take care of foreigners who come to this land. But it also, it's a little bit insensitive sometimes to the people who are living in those areas about how they're now going to put security to protect foreigners coming in for their super expensive Camps Bay vacation rather than the actual people living in, say, Kailicha or the people living in the city, right? So it's a, it's a bit of a strange one. I understand why it's in place, and, and maybe that tourism money is super important for the rest of the economy, and I think it is, but it kind of comes out as a little bit insensitive towards the rest of the country who are dealing with the crime problems that we are. 
Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree that this is not sufficient at all. That's my take on it, at least. Um, I think a complete overhaul of the policing system. Um, there's obviously a lot of inequality in South Africa, and, and so a lot of crime stems from that. So there's much bigger problems here, and obviously something like this is really just putting a little Band-Aid on, like you say, just for foreign investment, just for a little bit of foreign uh, expenditure. I've certainly seen that uh, perception on the side of the pond, especially when my wedding is taking place in Pretoria this year, to try and convince uh, some people from the side of the world, or, or at least even from you know Canada and, and those kinds of places, Canada, New Zealand, I've got friends from all over now, and uh, to try and get them to, to come through to South Africa where they've only seen the bad things on the front pages. And Fair enough. I mean, you and I would both have fairly close interactions with, with people who have had really, really terrible things happen to them. So I, co I completely see the concern, but I don't think this one is sufficient. Um, I, a lot more work is needed here. Yeah, without a doubt. The next one is a huge boost on infrastructure. So I don't know where they're going to get the money from, but they're claiming that they're going to be spending 700 billion rand sure. on various infrastructure development projects. Some of the some of the kind of the categories under that is student accommodation, social housing, water production, rail freight lines, embedded electricity generation, municipal bulk infrastructure, and broadband rollouts. And so lots of very important infrastructure for cities around South Africa. Um, I think it's, it's much needed in our economy, but it's hard to justify sometimes because we haven't seen the economic growth necessary to fund this. So South Africa is in a very difficult position when it comes to the debt crisis. We are at very, very dangerous levels. And Cyril mentioned that we have a very difficult budget speech that's going to come up very soon because our GDP growth obviously is not growing that much, if at all and uh, debt's reaching quite dangerous levels. So it's always a chicken and egg here. You need the infrastructure growth to be able to sustain economic growth, but you need the economic growth to fund the infrastructure. And so which way does it go and how interrelated are those two things is very difficult to understand. Um, but a 700 billion rand infrastructure boost is, I think it's good news, but it's hard to know where the money's going to come from. Very, very interesting. Um, I'm also completely perplexed as to where that comes from. Um, a couple of episodes back, Barry and I did a bit of Googling in terms of South Africa's GDP. And, you know, that is a huge, huge number, especially with debt levels. Where are they actually going to get that cash? I know in the upcoming budget speech, a lot of people have been talking about potentially rising VAT rates again. Um, obviously, you know, for, for wealthier people, the extra tax brackets, all of those kinds of things always get brought about when we, when we start to look at um, these kind of deficits. Um, but, you know, that is still a huge number. Um, I don't know how we'd get that without it being debt. Yeah, definitely. It is a big number. I, th I think it's worth noting. I don't think it's just this year. I think it's a probably a five or 10 year project. So it's not 700 billion Rand in 2020, right. but it still is a crazy amount of money. And like you say, it, the tax base is not growing like it should because we got such a huge proportion who's under the tax threshold and we don't have enough people carrying that tax base. And so where that 700 billion is going to come, I don't know. Hopefully there's a lot of foreign investment that maybe might be able to fund that kind of stuff. Um, so you might see China getting involved. You might see the US coming and getting involved because these sorts of infrastructure plans are exactly what these first world countries are wanting to invest in in, in Africa. And so maybe it's going to be led by foreign investments. Um, but wherever it comes from, the hope is that money actually gets spent well and doesn't get siphoned off into private pockets like we've seen in the past, right? So the biggest concern here is that we're going to put out all these tenders for all these new jobs, and we have to make sure that the right people get the right job at the right price. And the corruption that has kind of crippled South Africa over the last 20 years, that's the risk of this, is that how much of the 700 billion is actually going to go to genuine infrastructure developments that are going to help our country and how much of it are going to get lost in the bureaucracy and the corruption that we see here.
Well, we'll certainly have to see. I mean, there's no doubt that there's a wealth of opportunity in Africa. And, and certainly if these things are handled at source, just like you said, I could definitely see other countries getting involved. This next one looks pretty worrying. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm not quite sure how to talk about this because there's so little information so far. But basically there's talk about the ANC or the, go the government at the moment bringing out a state-owned bank, right? So, so I know what you're thinking. Of course, we need another state-owned enterprise. They've done so well in the past. Why don't we start another one, right? That's what you're thinking, I know. And so we need Absolutely. an AC-led bank. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so it's it's still very early stages. There's, there's very little information about what it might look like. But the reasoning behind it is that they want to bring financial services to the majority of the population who don't have access to them. And so I understand that reasoning. I think that for a lot of the major banks, the poorest of our country are simply not worth banking because the cost of banking them is more than the fees they would earn. And so a lot of the major banks won't even look at you if you're under a certain income bracket. And so as far as I understand, this bank is going to try and provide services to that kind of income bracket. Um, whether they can do it effectively and efficiently, I don't know. I think that the South African banking industry is one of the strongest in the world. And so hopefully we can learn from some of the lessons we've learned in the last little bit. Our, our Reserve Bank is very well regarded. And so hopefully they're well involved in the process as well. And so I, I don't know what I think about this. Um, it, it, is, it is, of course, worrying because we, what we've seen in the past with state-owned enterprises. But um, we have to wait and see as to more information and look at what is this going to look like going forward. Um, a state-owned bank is, is terrifying in words, but maybe when we actually see what the plans are, we might change our minds. Indeed, uh, we'll have to see. Uh, I'm really glad that uh, the sort of target of this bank is not the Reserve Bank because that has been attracting a lot of attention. For some strange reason, um, ANC politicians want to nationalize the Reserve Bank, one of the only entities that actually has real good integrity in our economy. Um, and so I'm really glad that this wasn't what was being announced here. Um, moving on to the next one, uh, we basically spoke about a storm last week in the UK, Storm Ciara, and th this last week we've had another one, Storm Dennis, um, with such an innocent name, but uh, has really been wreaking havoc throughout the country and, uh, yeah, throughout the United Kingdom, really. Um, so, yeah, I've just basically got a whole bunch of photos in front of me and uh, really, really insane stuff. If you look at the, the sort of state of the floods, a lot of people saying that these floods are, are happening because of the land in the UK being so saturated. Obviously, you know, once you get to that point, there's nowhere really for it to go. Um, and, yeah, basically, we are going to see sustained rainfall for the next week at least. And some people saying even maybe into the next month. Uh, so I'm certainly not looking forward to that. Um, I haven't really seen too many fatalities um, in the storm. Um, but yeah, certainly a lot of people being put out. Um, and even, I believe, in Essex, some people actually being evacuated from their homes. Um, so yeah, certainly let's see how that develops over time. Um, but yeah, Barry, are you glad you don't have any storms like that this side? Yeah, Chad, there's beautiful sunshine outside. We have not a drop of rain. Uh, so that, that is one thing where Africa, I think, beats the UK. Uh, I'm going to have to claim the weather piece. Undoubtedly. Um, but yeah, we definitely need some more rain sometimes. We go through some droughts every now and then. But yeah. Uh, yeah, sorry to hear about that. And hopefully everyone who is in the UK who's listening, take care of yourself. Indeed. Let's move on to our next segment. Stuff I found interesting. 
On stuff I found interesting this week, we've got a few things. But the first one is going to be a short one that I didn't expect to enjoy, but I came across it and it really blew my mind and kind of showed a side of sports that I'd never seen before. So, Chad, I don't know if you know, but if, uh, probably about a week and a half ago now was the Super Bowl, which sure. is kind of the biggest sporting event in the U.S., right? Yep. Basically, what happens is that in the NFL, which is American football, the two, top two teams from the whole season play in this final, which is called the Super Bowl, and it gets some ungodly amounts of people watching, like hundreds yep. of millions of people or something crazy. Yep. And it, it is this giant spectacle. There are like there are the, I think the, the TV ads during the Super Bowl are worth something like five or six million dollars for a 30 second ad, yep. something crazy. Yep. Um, at the halftime show, you always have some of the biggest musical artists putting on like the show of their life, and they've got 10 to 12 minutes to put on this elaborate spect elaborate spectacle. And it really is a huge, huge commercial success. Um, that brings in a huge amount of money for the NFL. Right, so that happened last week. What I found fascinating was, after the event, I found a video on YouTube put out by the NFL itself, which was a video showing all of the players and the coaches and all of that stuff on the field who were mic'd during the whole Super Bowl. And so what they showed was a highlights package of the game, but not shown through like what's happening on the field, but showing the coaches talking to the players and the players wow. talking to each other and, and everything mic'd up and sounding crispy, crispy clear. And it was a fascinating piece of media because I don't think I've ever seen anything like it. You, you, you saw the coaches deciding, cool, we're going to go for that player and not that player. We're going to put that guy around there. We saw the players giving pep talks to someone who just dropped a pass or whatever the story was. And this really unique first-person perspective onto this huge huge like, sports event, wow. which was absolutely amazing. It was one of the most fascinating pieces of video I think I've ever watched. And why I thought it was interesting was because I can't imagine the amount of footage they must have had to go through if they had mic'd up every single player and every coach and kind of worked through all of that and put together this like beautiful piece of footage. Um, it really is a, a testament to how seriously the NFL takes their content and how seriously they take this as their like main showpiece. And even if you don't like football, it really is cool to go and watch what's actually happening on the, on the, f on the floor, on the grass, the guys talking to each other during the game. I thought it was really cool. That sounds amazing. I haven't seen the video in question, but I've got the link now. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, certainly if you're listening, go and have a little search on YouTube for it. Um, yeah, really fascinating with the just technology these days and, and what's possible. I wondered whether these people, because being mic'd up, obviously that's not their go-to usual um, scenario. I wonder whether they had a bit of stage fright or on the other side uh, made it a little bit more dramatic. Is that something that you picked from this video? Yeah, my guess would be that they completely forgot about it, right? I think that right. if you're in that moment, it's like what you've been working to your whole career. I, I wonder if they even realized that they were, they were being mic'd. Um, I find it crazy because I wonder I wonder how long it took or how like how much technical things it took to make sure that everything had worked. And when you watch the video, you'll see the production quality is like world class. It's amazing. It's not a shaky home video. Like it's it's really really well done. And yeah. so, yeah, I, I, I think it's fascinating. I think it, it shows a new way of looking at sport going forward. For a lot of sports, they're trying to find new ways to bring spectators into the game and try and find ways to make it more interactive. We've seen some guys talking about virtual reality in sports. So maybe one day you put on goggles and you kind of watch from the sideline as opposed to three kilometers up in the stadium. Um, but this is maybe an idea for other sports to look at how do you bring fans into the game and give them a real experience as if they were there on the field with the players. Yeah, it definitely sounds like based on the amount of footage involved, they certainly would be able to do that on a live basis. Um, but really cool to attract some attention after the fact. Um, and, you know, undoubtedly that took a lot of time and investment as well to get that right. Um, so I'm certainly really keen to go and watch this. Um, we'll 
pr- pretty much do that straight after the episode. So on to the next one. This one, a really short one. It's really just me uh, kind of rubbing it into those on that side of the pond. <laughs> in terms of the, the cheapness of data costs. Now, we spoke about data ruling in South Africa a while back, probably a few months ago. Um, and, you know, just talked about a couple of the data costs. And uh, I recently upgraded to a new package. And I thought, let's have a little chat about the prices and get Barry's reaction. Um, so I've just signed up to a new unlimited 5G data plan um, where we have 5G infrastructure already ready to go Um, and this package as I said unlimited data includes roaming to South Africa and 77 other countries they give you 25 gigabytes uh, on roaming which is fairly fairly substantial Um, you also then get unlimited calls unlimited text um, spotify premium which generally costs about 10 pounds a month is included and you get all of this for a mere 36 pounds a month what does that sound like to you barry it sounds mightily unfair chad it sounds mightily (laughs) unfair i think yeah it's one of those things where in south africa our data costs are so excessive that any price that that is in the first world even places like india and china sounds incredible and sounds almost too good to be true but it it sounds amazing i mean i I went to go and renew my contract about a few weeks ago um, and change my contract and i was looking through all the various data options that i had and the cost is absolutely crazy that you find yourself kind of like skimping on data and trying to do everything you can under Wi-Fi hotspots, right? So you'll, yep. you won't look at Instagram on data. You won't look at any of your apps on data. You'll only use Wi-Fi for those things and try and keep your data for what's crucially important. So say Google Maps while you're driving around or if you need to send messages while you're away from a Wi-Fi spot, et cetera. Um, and so what, what, what this kind of package does, it gives you that freedom to be able to use your phone in any way that you want, anywhere yep. that you want. And, and even when it's international, that, that's also incredible. Um, and so, yeah, I'm very jealous, Chad. <laughs> I think it's really cool. Um, but hopefully we see that, that kind of data cost coming down in South Africa as well. Yeah, I was fascinated to see this package because it's the first time we really started talking about unlimited data. We've seen the unlimited calls and unlimited texts before. And also, while I was still in South Africa, Vodacom did have an unlimited data package. But it was there was a very big asterisk next to it, which basically imposed a soft cap. So after a certain threshold of, of data cap... They throttle your speeds down to an unusable speed, and so there is a limit that's there. Uh, this, however, has no such caps at all. It is completely uncapped on your mobile device. There is obviously such good infrastructure here, so much bandwidth available, um, that they're able to offer this these types of package at a really affordable price. Um, and for me, really fascinating. Um, I, I certainly remember what I was paying for data in South Africa, and this is just absolutely crazy on to the next one uh, this one is not really to rub in but but kind of to rub in um, i suppose <laughs> this is kind of chad's gloating episode if you'd like um i was really in the privileged position and i really really will say that it was an absolute privilege uh, to be in a incredibly intimate performance last night of phineas um those of you who don't know who phineas is we've spoken about him on our episodes in the past but a couple of things have happened since then So Phineas is the brother and producer of the amazing, world-renowned Billie Eilish who's hit the globe by storm in the last couple of years. Um, He has now won five Grammys um, since we last spoke about him. Um, And he's also got his own solo artist career, which is on the up. Um, And this 
performance that I witnessed. Um, they are currently in London at the moment for uh, a promo tour for the new James Bond single. And uh, yeah, basically, this was him squeezing in the only solo performance of his throughout this tour. Um, and obviously, I was working at the uh, record label that he is signed to. Obviously. And that's how, obviously. And, uh, obviously <laughs> and, and that's how I got this amazing privilege. Um, right time, right place, literally on the last day of my contract. It couldn't have been more perfect. Um, I Honestly, it, it was amazing. So he came on, did five songs. Um, I was within a couple of meters of him. Um, and just a couple of observations. He was incredibly polished. Now, whenever I've watched some of his videos in the past, obviously he's really young. He's 22 years old. Um, really, really mature for that age. But uh, some of the videos that I've seen on YouTube in the past have obviously been at the early end of his career. And, uh, you know, you kind of see a fumble here or there. And, and now he is this absolute polished professional performer um which is which is actually insane i didn't hear one vocal crack nothing like that he's got an amazing vocal tone um has is able to captivate an audience really has this insane connection uh, with with everyone there um he literally made direct eye contact with me pretty much every single song um and it's just that it's just that one way of, of somebody to actually you know get that captivating mood um you know and 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 not just close their eyes and and you know have that direct eye contact uh, which was absolutely amazing um and what i found really cool as well is he had some really great things to say about the label about awol um so that's the label that i was at um it stands for a world artists love and it's an independent label they're really just trying to challenge the music industry try to make the music industry work for artists and uh, he said he said things like uh, you know the label lets him keep rights to his works um the label isn't strict with their anr process um, and so he literally just sends through a master of whatever track it is and it just gets released and for me an artist to to sort of come in and speak about their label, you don't really see that often. Um, and so it also, for me, just talks a little bit about kind of humility on his side. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I just thought it was uh, absolutely fascinating. Now, the the one of the other things that was definitely not expected about this evening is right at the end, I obviously stayed the right length of time. Um, and I actually, three meters in front of me, saw Billie Eilish, um, which was quite a moment um, can you believe it? Um, she was Did you fangirl? I completely fangirled. Um, she was three meters away from me. <laughs> I actually, I actually called the lift because I was, I was leaving the venue at that time, and uh, security guard just came over and just said, "Sorry, would you please just step aside? Um, you want to just move, move over here?" And I, I knew exactly what was happening. Stood aside, and and there she was. Took the <laughs> lift that I called, essentially. Um, and yeah, just absolute fangle moment, like you said. Um, really, really crazy stuff. I, I I just couldn't believe it. And it's it, it's kind of one of those where, you know, had I been back in South Africa, I don't think I would have had an opportunity like this. Um, right time, right place uh, to see somebody so relevant um, at this at this moment in time, moment in history, really, um, in person, right in front of me. Didn't get to chat to her, but. How amazing, nevertheless. That That's super cool. And I, I was very jealous. I was texting Chad at the time because I was sitting at an open mic night. And while the music was wonderful there, it obviously was way better where Chad was. Um, and so, yeah, it's super cool. I think that that kind of intimate concert, I think those are such special moments as musicians, right? Yeah. A lot of, a lot of music these days in these giant stadiums, you'll pay, you'll pay a fortune of money. You'll be standing for six or seven hours before the concert starts and you'll be there with like thousands of people. And so that, that is an amazing experience, but there's something special 
also about that intimate connection. Definitely. And uh, it's underrated, that skill, to be able to hold the space of a small audience and, and still give that kind of eye contact, give that intimate feeling, and really make an impression on you, as I, as I think he did. And so, yeah, I'm very jealous. I'm, I'm super chuffed that you got the opportunity. And uh, like we were saying the other day, like that, that job that you did just gave you this random opportunity that you never would have come across. And uh, that's what life's all about. 100%. That's exactly what it is. We, we kind of need to seize these little opportunities whenever they come. Um, and yeah, I mean, looking back at this, I have no doubt 20 years time, um, you know, talking about this, this crazy moment. And, and it really is that um, if you look at the, 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 I mean, what are the actual chances of, of, of catching his sister? Um, and also this really rare opportunity to catch him. Um, and I'm still of the opinion that he's about to explode around the world. Um, at the moment, he's got sort of 2 million followers on Instagram. I think she's got about 50. Um, but there certainly is a lot more to come out of out of his stable. Um, so, yeah, one to watch. If you've never heard of him, definitely do go and check out Phineas, a very kind of singer-songwriter type uh, genre. Barry, you went and had a listen to some of his catalog yesterday. Yeah, that, that's the point I wanted to raise is that you don't think that he's like Billie Eilish because he really isn't, right? So if you yeah. don't like Billie Eilish, there's a chance you might love Phineas. So uh, like I, I made the assumption that their styles might be quite similar because they work together so clear, carefully on that album. Yeah. But when I went to listen to his solo stuff, it's very, very different kind of vibe. And so it's definitely worth a listen. Go and check it out. I think his lyrics are amazing. He's an amazing lyricist. Absolutely. Um, and his whole production, it's, it's, it's really beautiful music. So, so highly recommended. Absolutely. Now, let's move on to our next segment. Looking Ahead. In this week's Looking Ahead, we are taking a topic again that we looked at extensively last week, which was the future of philanthropy. Uh, and if you remember last week, Chad, we were chatting about Bill, Bill and Melinda Gates and the kind of the money that they've dedicated to try and solving some of the health issues in the world and some of the sanitation, all sorts of things, trying to make that wealth actually talk, make it have an impact. And we chatted about, are they going to set the precedent for future billionaires going forward? And then almost serendipitously, two days ago, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon and the world's rich richest person at the moment, announces that he's dedicating $10 billion worth of his personal wealth towards climate change-related causes. And so what he's done is he's set up something called the Jeff Bezos Earth Fund. And what they're going to do is they're going to fund various um, research labs and people working on climate change-related issues to try and put that wealth to work and try and help the world trying to fight against climate change. And so $10 billion is a huge amount of money. It's, as far as I understand, it's the third biggest single donation in history behind a Warren Buffett donation and also a Sam Walton donation from Walmart. And so it's a huge amount of money, a big kind of step in the right direction when it comes to philanthropy and putting that money to good use. And uh, we're going to have to wait to see what that fund is going to start funding and what impact it's going to have on the world. But interesting that he's gone away. He's not, not looking at health or education or any of that. He's focusing on climate change. What do you think, Chad? I think the timing of it means maybe he was listening to our podcast. Who knows? Uh, maybe <laughs> Jeff Bezos is one of our listeners. Um, it, it's an interesting one. I know there's been a lot about his his personal wealth in the press, um, and and considering that this is sort of half of it, um, you know, that he lost to uh, his former wife. Um, so yeah, I mean, like you said, I think it's definitely a step in the right direction. Nevertheless, um, obviously, uh, still contentious um, in, in terms of you know what what employees have been have been saying um but definitely uh, i would say better late than never 100 percent. yeah i think i think that's the thing that amused me the most was that even though he's giving away 10 billion dollars <laughs> of his own money 
he still couldn't catch a break from the press. The press still were all over him. Um, and and so I think it's it's indicative of how difficult it is to do good in the world when people are just cutting you off at every single corner. So some of the major things the press are bringing up. The first is that are his intentions pure? And the reason people were bringing that up was because he's faced a lot of issues with his own employees in the past. Um, about a year or two ago, a, a thousand of employees of Amazon signed a petition to try and get Amazon to do more about fighting climate change. So there was a huge petition. There was there was uh, strikers who worked, walked out. There were employees who were very, very unhappy with what Amazon was doing in the space. And so you wonder if this is a, a reaction to kind of the, the, the physical and the, the virtual strikes and impact that these employees had on the Amazon brand. So that's the first thing. Amazon, in, in fact, pledged that they were going to be carbon neutral by 2040, which is quite quite soon, right? So in 20, 20 years away. And it also said it would deploy 100,000 electric delivery vans by 2024. So in the next four years, they are committing to delivering 100,000 delivery vans, which are electric in nature, not diesel or petrol. So you wonder whether this is a reaction to that kind of pressure from a social perspective. And if it is, maybe that's a good thing, because that pressure actually done something. It's now got $10 billion worth of money into this fight. The second thing, which I thought was terrible from the media's perspective, was people were taking that 10 billion and looking at what percentage of his total wealth that was. And I think it comes to about 8%, or just under 8% of his total wealth. What they were then doing was taking a median income for a normal family, calculating 8% of that, and showing what uh, investment of 8% actually looks like in terms that we could understand. And what this does, it kind of cheapens the idea that 10 billion is a lot and kind of tries to show them that it's actually just pocket change for him, which I think is crazy because even though <laughs> I understand it's yeah. only 8% of his wealth, but it's a huge amount of money and it's a serious, serious charitable donation. And so you can never go right with the media. No matter how much good you're supposed to do, you give away $10 billion, uh, the media still gets on their, on their horse. Yeah, to be quite completely honest, I mean, I've always heard this guideline of roughly 10% for, for charity. And so, like you said, on, on his scale um, with the amount of cash that he has, um, you know, this will make a significant difference in the world. Um, and, and so I completely agree in terms of I, I don't understand why this is so contentious. I mean, what do people expect? Do they expect him to give away half of his wealth? Um, the other thing is I've, I've seen people, at least on this side, a lot of people kind of boycotting Amazon um, just to try and sort of not give more money to Jeff Bezos. And I had a conversation with a guy the other day um, who actually said he tried to do this for a couple of weeks until he realized the thing that he wanted to get, he literally couldn't get anywhere else. And so there is the, the fact that uh, what he has contributed to society in terms of, you know, usefulness and uh, the jobs and, you know, just ease of convenience for us as well, um, you know, that wealth is, is deserved. Um, and uh, ultimately, what should we all aspire to um, if, you know, having that wealth um, is, is not okay either? Um, in terms of the vans, this is also an interesting one for me because we spoke about the UK's ban of petrol and diesel vehicles, which is happening in uh, 2035. And so for me, a statement like this uh, is quite convenient given that timing. Um, potentially, a lot of these vans would have, by regulation, already had to um, have been switched over. But still, I think we should take any of these kinds of things as a move in the right direction um, and, you know, let them happen, encourage them, rather than uh, put extra pressure on, uh, on the inverse.
Without a doubt. If we can't celebrate the fact that $10 billion is going to go to fight climate change, then what can we celebrate, right? And so I understand the media are trying to sell newspapers. They're trying to get clicks. They're trying to, like, create outrage. It's one of those things where he's done a good thing. Regardless of how it came about, regardless of what the intentions are, it's a huge step in the right direction. And for a problem as important as climate change, it's crucially important, and we need it. Absolutely. Let's move on to our next segment. Develop and grow. So on Develop and Grow this week, Barry's got quite a few things to say to us. So uh, I'll hand this one straight over. Take us through it. Yeah, Chad, I know we're already over time, so it's going to be a long episode again. We do apologize. So I'm going to go through these as swiftly as I can. Um, but a few things that I found really cool this week and I've been really thinking about quite carefully. The first thing is, is note-taking. Right, so when we are when we are in school, we in university, we encourage to take notes on lectures, and we try and learn through taking notes. And taking notes is something that a lot of people have very different views on. Right, some people will sit in a lecture, for example, and try and write down everything the professor says, and try to like take a transcript of everything. Some people will arrive with no pen, no pad, no nothing, and just have take no notes whatsoever. And so it's a wide ranging ideas to what actually matters when you're trying to acquire knowledge or trying to learn from something you're watching or reading or listening to. And for someone like me, I'm a big fan of notes. I take a lot of them. I think they're important. And so I was reading this piece about taking better notes. And I thought I might share some things about how can we take better notes to ensure that we retain more information, we understand more what we're doing, and we're not just writing things for writing's sake. The first interesting piece I thought, Chad, was the statement is that writing is not the outcome of thinking. It is the medium in which thinking takes place. So the idea here is that notes is not something that comes afterwards, after you've thought about something and then you write it down. While you're writing it down, that's actually the process of thinking. Because while you're trying to articulate something in your own words and trying to write it on a piece of paper, you have to f- try and figure out to understand it in your own brain. Yep. And, and that certainly rings true for me because I find that the only way that I can think c- carefully and clearly is by writing things down. I can't just do it all in my head. Yeah. What do you do, Chad? Yeah, so I mean, I try to write down. Um, I, th- I think the, 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 the practical question that I have here is, is how do you write down? Like, where do you actually store your notes? Are we talking about just a piece of paper that then gets thrown away once that memory has been imprinted in your brain? Um, or, you know, do you actually store these notes in a sort of practical fashion that you can kind of come back to them uh, at a later stage? I certainly use an iPad. And so whenever I go to work, I write all my notes on an iPad. Um, And so for me, you know, just having one thing with me that I can always access what it is that I need. Um, You know, it also adds extra features that you can actually search through your handwriting. Um, So, you know, things are easily callable up there. And also just being able to change colors, um, because obviously, I, I, you know, I think depending on how your brain works, uh, colors are also sometimes a way of associating different things. Um, and so I always found throughout my studies, had I not written something down, done a, put a summary together, summarizing was a massive uh, you know, tool for me. Um, and so you know, that is something that I will always use 100%. Yeah, without a doubt. And and for me, I always try and take handwritten notes, but then I always transcribe them into an electronic format. Right. So I have my Evernote where I've got every note that I've ever written like till the beginning of from the beginning of time. And and that's how I kind of catalog and make my notes searchable, like you say, and to be able to use them going forward. But for me, the act of writing is kind of a trigger in my brain for knowledge acquisition. So beyond whether I'm actually going to use that piece of paper or not, the mere act of doing it by hand for me helps me retain more information. 
Right. And so that's why I think it's important people, even if you don't like writing things down, I think there still is value for pen and paper just to kind of get your brain into that mindset of there's information coming. I'm trying to listen to what I'm hearing. I'm not just writing down exactly what I'm hearing, right? That's important. I'm not just taking a transcription. Anyone can do that. What I'm trying to do is understand the idea that's being communicated and then thinking about it in my own words and trying to articulate it in my own words. If you're able to do that, then you're proving to yourself you actually understand what's going on. If you're just writing down exactly what the professor is saying or what your work colleague is saying or what the podcast is saying, you're not actually learning. You're just, you're just rote learning things, right? So it's important to be able to take that information in and whether it's electronically or on paper, write in your own words. And that's how you take really effective notes. The next piece is the fact that we need to follow what is interesting to us when we write notes, right? I think we all get into the, the habit of during school time and during university, we used to only write things down if we thought it was going to be in the exam. There's always that question, ma'am, is this going to be in the test, right? And so we try to retain information to cram in those exams. And there are lots of interesting tidbits and interesting other pieces of information that aren't necessarily testable, they aren't necessarily practical, they might not be useful in your next business meeting. But if they're interesting to you, it's worth writing them down because that kind of curiosity and that kind of interest-based learning is what makes you a more well-rounded person and it, it pays off in ways you won't be able to predict. So you might think that something is not relevant right now and therefore I'm not going to write a note on it. But if it's interesting to you and it could be useful in the future, it's worth following that path. And so I think the message is don't just write what you think is going to be on the test, but actually focus on things that are interesting to you and follow those rabbit holes. And the last piece here is looking at contradictory ideas or paradoxical ideas. Sometimes we come across two pieces of information that seem diametrically opposed. And we might think, oh, there's only one right answer, so I've got to pick one and ignore the other. I think those paradoxes and those contradictory ideas are important to note down because it gives you a balanced view of what a certain issue might be about. If you're able to articulate both sides of the coin or both sides of an argument, even if you only agree with one side, but to be able to understand both sides is important. And so those contradictory ideas and paradoxical ideas are important to note down, articulate to yourself. It makes you a clearer thinker and it shows your arguments are more solid. 100% uh, absolutely fundamental thing that, you know, like you said, I think a lot of us don't do enough of. I certainly know when I was in articles, um, when a junior was coming along and I was kind of teaching them something new, um, you know, a lot of people, like you said, don't come with anything at hand. And uh, half an hour after going back to the desk, they're, they're back asking the same question again. Um, and so... And it's fundamental. Don't just repeat, but uh, write in a way that you can understand, write in a way that means something to you. Um, just to, to talk to your iPad point, I do write with my hands. Um, so I've got an Apple Pencil. Um, for me, that's fundamental as well. Um, if I'm not writing, if I'm just typing it, um, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, I, for some reason, it doesn't hit that same sweet spot of memory in my mind. Um, and, and so that was, that was really the changing tool for me. Um, you know, going from basically the, the sort of worst class in, in grade eight to being in the top class in, in grade 11. And, and, and it really was just that, starting to summarize stuff, starting to write down stuff, solidify, um, not, not always just in a regurgitating fashion, but like you say, pick out the salient points, pick out the things that are interesting um, and sometimes find interest. Uh, sometimes we can find interest in things that are at first glance not interesting to us. Um, and, you know, that inherently makes it, um, you know, a lot, a lot easier for us to to keep hold of and and, and to remember. Um, so yeah, 
thanks for that, Barry. I think for a future episode, um, how you've actually practically gone about cataloging all that stuff in Evernote, um, I think would be a useful thing for our listeners. So maybe something to revisit. Talk us through the next one. Yes, the next one is a quote that I, from a book that I've just finished. So we chatted a little bit about the book in the last episode, talking about emotional health. And the book was called A School of Life, The School of Life, sorry, uh, An Emotional Education. And so I just finished the book, and I wanted to share one more quote which I thought was really cool. And it's on the idea of forgiveness, right? So chatting about if someone wrongs you or if something goes wrong in your life, how do you forgive people and how do you forgive yourself? And so I'm just going to read the quote, Chad, and then we can chat about it if we need be. The wise are comparably realistic about other people. They recognize the extraordinary pressure everyone is under to pursue their own ambitions, to defend their own interests, and to seek their own pleasures. It can make others appear extremely mean and purposefully evil, but this would be to over-personalize the issue. So why I think it's a great quote is the fact that when someone does something to us, it feels personal all of the time. It feels like the reason they are being mean to us, the reason they're saying something that's not nice, the reason that they are ignoring us, etc., is because of us. And I think it's important to realize that sometimes it's not because of us, and often it's not because of us. Often it's because they've got their own ambitions, their own goals, their own agenda that they are trying to get to in their head, and they're just not taking your agenda into consideration. And so... By understanding that, sometimes we can take a little bit of the pressure off that kind of those kind of interactions and we can forgive easier if we understand that in the same way that we are selfish and we are greedy and we are looking for our own best intentions, everyone else is doing the same thing. And once you realize that, it makes sure that you aren't over-personalizing that issue. It's not just because of you. It's because they've got their own life they're living, their own issues, their own struggles, their own demons that you don't know anything about. I'm certainly guilty of this one. Um, as a person who's really sensitive, I think, like you said, I, I definitely take things personally where, where it's not even required. Um, and, and like you said, everyone has their own goals, has their own frame of reference. And a lot of the time, you know, we kind of just force our own frame of reference on other people um, where, you know, it's it sometimes is good to step into somebody else's shoes. Um, and uh, yeah, maybe peel that onion one layer at a time um, just to, to try and get to that, that core meaning. Um, so yeah, it looks like that was a, a, good, a good book for you. Without a doubt. It was, I really enjoyed it. And so I've got a blog post coming out pretty soon about my review of the book, so stay tuned for that. The last piece on this segment, Chad, was just a quick report back. We've chatted about Toastmasters in the past, and so I thought because we are being accountable to our audience, we should, we should announce things that we've chatted about beforehand. And uh, I've decided I'm not going to join Toastmasters after all. So we had a bit of a chat about whether it's good or not and, and what are the value and is it worth doing all of it. And after a lot of thought, I've decided not to go through with it, not because of Toastmasters itself, but because I've got other priorities that I think need my time more. Yep. So yeah, I'm not going to be joining Toastmasters, but if anyone is out there and is looking to improve their public speaking or their communication, I think it's definitely worth an investigation. Well, thanks for reporting back to us. Um, I thought it was important to include you because a lot of the time we, we talk about these things we're thinking of doing. Um, and, you know, if we don't kind of keep that little narrative going through, our, our listeners are, are going to wonder why we're not closing off on topics. Um, but, yeah, I'm sure there were quite a few considerations there. And sometimes we do need to just uh, assess this too much on our plate. Um, I know, you, you know, you've been taking on 100 day of, days of code. You're busy with a thesis. You know, Barry's got loads on his plate. So fair enough. Um, I, I can see how that happened. Shall we move on to a question from our listener? Let's do it. What's on your mind? Right, so on what's on your mind this week, we've got a voice note, and this is a question from Anton. Anton, thanks for your question. Let's have a listen. Hi, Barry and Chad. I love the show. I just wanted to know, what do you guys think about the coronavirus outbreak 
and more specifically with the fact that people are speculating that China is censoring some of the statistics and the news out of China and more specifically Wuhan? Right. Quite a good question. We kind of touched on this briefly the first time we ever brought up the coronavirus. Um, and obviously, as this virus has evolved and uh, as we've seen these numbers being reported, uh, it becomes more and more important. Do you think China are actually holding back on the figures? Uh, I've certainly seen pictures of the cities uh, still completely shut down. Um, what do you think, Barry? Yeah, so it's a very difficult one. I've actually been reading a lot about this in the last few days because it's one of those things where... On a global level, it's very important we have the right information to act off, right? So it's very important that we are transparent with each other. We know exactly what's happening, where the outbreaks are happening, where, where kind of the hotspots are, so that we can make the best decisions to try and stop the outbreak. Yep. But on the other side of the coin, if you're a country or if you're a government and you're trying to protect your reputation, you're trying to protect your economy, you're trying to protect various interests, there's an incentive to kind of mislead or incentive to massage the data so that you aren't getting hit as much as possible. If you think about a Chinese perspective, they are trying to contain this as best they can. And every every moment that goes where it gets worse and worse as a virus, it impacts their economy, it impacts their standing in international relations, it impacts things like travel bans, which really hurt the economy as well. And so there's incentives to lie. But as a, as a world, we need to come together and to be able to act on correct information. And so while I can't speculate as to what China is doing, no one actually knows what the truth is. Yeah. It's important that we understand that um, people want to keep their reputation and, and there's an incentive against showing the truth, which is not good for the world as a whole. Absolutely. I mean, we've certainly seen the first uh, death in the EU, uh, which happened in France, I believe. Um, and so, you know, like you said, in terms of how it's sort of evolving around everything that is not China, we, we, we feel like we have good messaging around that. Um, but it's really, really hard to know what's, what's, what side is up, really, um, when it's coming from a country that has been known in the past to hold back on information and obviously, like you said, has incentive to do so. Um, so, yeah, we can kind of just only really hope um, in this instance. Um, and, yeah, let's hope that we do get that right messaging coming through. Yeah, I, I think so. And I think what's important to realize from the media perspective as well is that all of this data is so uncertain. No one has a has a real truthful understanding of exactly what's happening on the ground. There's so much nonsense. There's so much um, interaction with data that when we're talking about these issues, we have to understand the uncertainty that we're dealing with and understand the fact that we don't have all the information right now. And we're doing the best that we can with whatever we're getting from around the world. Absolutely. Um, that, I think, brings us to a close of yet another episode of Across the Pond. Hopefully you've stayed along right until the very end. Uh, if you have, thanks so much for listening. And as always, please subscribe wherever you're listening. Give us a little review if that platform allows. And uh, yeah, please, as always, tune in next time as well. Barry, do you want to say cheers from that side of the pond? Of course. Thanks again for tuning in to episode 15 of Across the Pond. We'll see you next week. Uh, be kind to yourself. Pond, across the pond, with Barry and Chad.